0: The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Me, You're going to watch your Bibles now as we uh, open God's Word together. So turn in your copy of God's Word now to Exodus 6. Um, whether you're tuning in online and joining us there or here in the house, welcome to you. We are continuing our series through the book of Exodus in this series called God of Glory. But as you turn there, imagine yourself with me for a second. Imagine yourself hospitalized. Let's say with the coronavirus and you are experiencing the most extreme form of the symptoms. You're lying in an ICU bed and it's getting worse and not better. You've done what the doctors and nurses have asked of you, what the medical researchers and the medical experts have found to be most helpful, and you've done them all diligently, and yet things still look bleak. And so you cry out to God. You lament, trusting that God is at work, and yet you're not seeing him at work. When in walks a doctor... Someone maybe that you've only got a glimpse of, maybe you've never met, and he introduces himself as the doctor, Dr. Divine, let's say. And he says of himself, now now you will see what I will do for you. I am the doctor, I am Dr. Divine, and I have heard your groans, and I will bring you out from under this disease. I will alleviate your symptoms. I will restore to you your health and Vitality, for I am Dr. Divine. A scenario like this would uh, be almost too good to be true. For as you would be lying in your bed, you would think to yourself, "Where, Where has this doctor been the last five months? Why has he not tended to me already? And as you begin to tell the other patients and the nurses about this, they refuse to believe it, for it is too good to be true. And such is the case when we come to Exodus 6, not that they find themselves with coronavirus, but they find themselves uh, oppressed beyond belief. For you know, as we've worked our way through Exodus, or maybe you're familiar enough with the story, that you know that it's gone from bad to worse. That as the Israelites have sought the Lord and Moses has obeyed, it's gone from a bitter oppression to a lethal oppression. Moses has obeyed and he's approached Pharaoh with the message, let my people go. God has revealed himself and he's revealed his plan and he's revealed himself to Moses and the people and yet their slavery has gotten worse. Pharaoh has doubled down and things look bleak until the Lord speaks up. Until the Lord steps in and he makes this truth crystal clear for them and for us. That God's power alone will deliver us. If you're taking notes, write that down and do not forget it. That God's power alone will deliver us. See, Exodus is not just a historical account of the Israelite slavery a few thousand years ago. As the word of God here, there are truths to digest and applications to heed for us. And driving this book, driving this this story here is the reality that everybody needs in Exodus. There is not a human that has walked this earth apart from Christ that does not need deliverance from sin and to be ushered into the presence of the Lord. To say that everybody needs an exodus is to build this equation that deliverance plus presence equals exodus. Deliverance from sin, deliverance from bondage, and into the presence of our Lord is the exodus that all of us need. And let me tell you this, that God is the most important variable in the exodus equation. God himself is the most important variable in the Exodus equation. Without God, it does not work. Without God, it will fail. Exodus will not happen. And so, church, who is the book of Exodus about? Moses or God? It is God. It is the God of glory. And so, as we move out of chapter 5 as the backdrop, we find out that sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. Moses does obey, but Pharaoh doubles down, just as God said that he would. And thus Moses laments. Lamenting is where our human pain meets God's sovereignty, or as Dave Harvey is quoted as saying that lament is what happens when tragedy meets sovereignty. And so Moses laments in chapter six now is God's response to Moses. Chapter 6 now is God speaking, God responding, God telling us what is to happen. And so hopefully you've opened your Bible already. Join me in Exodus 6. I want to read the first portion here for us. Follow along in your Bible. It says this, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now this is God's word for God's people. And as we listen to God's response to Moses' lament, here is what God is teaching us now. The first point, we must believe it even when nobody else does. We must believe it even when no one else does. We must believe that it is God's power alone that will deliver us even when we are alone in that belief. See, chapter five, as I said, ends with Moses lamenting, actually accusing God of doing evil and failing to deliver them as he promised. And what we just read then is God's reply. The Lord is speaking and it's as if he's saying, you know what, I hear you, Moses. Now let me remind you of who I am. And what I have promised to do, he says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. You see that three times there in verse two and verse six and verse eight, as if we cannot miss it. I am the Lord and I am at work. I will do these things. And he promises seven things to do. And see, what we learn here then is that the more impossible the situation, the more glory God gets. That the the worse that it gets, the more God's glory he gets, the more he is going to come through. As you see the Israelite situation and their bondage here, there is no way they are going to legislate their way out of this. There is no way they're going to protest their way out of it. There is no way they're going to persuade anybody to get out of this. There is no way they will force or work their way out of this situation. God's power alone will deliver them. Make no mistake about it. God's power alone would be the source of their deliverance. And so look closer at what God is saying here with me. In verse 1, he, he first, God boasts of his power. You see, he like shows up on this scene here. Moses is lamenting and accusing him of evil right, at, the, at the very end of chapter 5. And then the Lord comes in and he says, hey, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh right? Let me just flex my muscles a little bit. And God is saying, you know what? I told you that Pharaoh won't let you go, but when I'm done with him, when I show him my strong arm, he's actually going to send you out. He will drive you out. He will be so glad to see you Israelites leaving his land that he will drive you out of here. It's a boast. God showing that it is his power that will deliver them. Second, in verse 2 through 5, he broadens his promise. And so he is, he is demonstrating, he's boasting of his power, and now he is reiterating the covenant then in, in verses 2 and 3 here that he first made to Abraham and then to his sons. And so he says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And he says, I appeared to your forefathers, to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, promising that I I would bless them and that in turn, as I bless them, they would be a blessing to the people around them. And anyone who curses them, I would curse them. And he promises Abraham that I will make your descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. And he promises third, that he would give them this land, the land of Canaan in which to dwell. And as he, he says, I promise these things, but to them I made, I was making the promise, and I've made myself known, as it says, as God Almighty, or the Hebrew El Shaddai. But to you, Moses, to you Israelites, I've made myself known by my covenant name. I've revealed myself as Yahweh, the one in relationship And now we have this word that God is referred to as far back in Genesis 4 as Yahweh. So it's not as though we get to Exodus 3 and it's the first time that God's covenant name here shows up on the scene. But what God is getting at with Moses and broadening his promise, he's saying to those forefathers, I made the promise, but to you in this generation, I'm going to keep it. You get to be the benefactors of those who will see this, even now as they are some two to three million strong, even now as they will leave the land of Egypt and move into the promised land, that to the forefathers, God was simply the promise maker. And a beautiful thing at that. But to Moses in this generation, he would be the promise keeper. And so he reminds them, he's saying, I've heard your groanings. I know the situation. I have not forgotten my promise. And then in verses 6 to 8, he makes these seven vows to them. Did you catch that as I was reading? These vows, these I will declarations that God makes to Moses and thus the people of Israel. These vows, we call them, similar to like our marriage vows, the commitments that we make, right? to in, what are they? It's in better and worse, right? In sickness and in health. Or maybe you are really creative and wordsmithy, and you made your own vows to your spouse. These are similar vows to like our membership commitments and the covenant we make that by God's help, we will live within these things. I will do this and here now the glory of it. How magnificent that God himself would say he would do these seven things, and Moses is then to tell the people about them. So note them here with me in your Bible. Look at verse six. God is telling Moses, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, right? All capitals, L-O-R-D is the translation of Yahweh, okay? And he says this, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians that oppressive slavery that they're under right now. God is saying, I'm going to bring you out of that. Not only am I going to do that, but I will, here second, deliver you from slavery to them. So not only am I going to lighten the load, not only are you no longer going to have to make these bricks and also get the straw to do them, but I'm going to deliver you completely from slavery. And third there, in the end of verse six, keep following with me, he says, I will redeem you. In other words, buy you back I will bring you into my family with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. And then anyone who knows the story of Exodus, right? That's coming in the next few chapters, right? Come back next week and we'll see all of these acts of judgment. And so he's going to redeem you. And then fourth, look here in verse seven. I will take you to be my people. So not only am I going to deliver you, but I will take you to be my people. I will uh, adopt you. And I will be your God. And what does it say? And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God who has done these things. I will adopt you and I will be your God. You, we will be in relationship together. And then look here, verse 8. Here he says, I will bring you into the land. I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to bring you back into the land that I promised to your forefathers. And I'm going to give it to you as a gift. And even as you read those here, what does it begin to tell us? Those first three vows, what are they? Vows of deliverance. And the last four, vows of presence. I'm going to take you out and I'm going to accomplish this exodus. And it begins and ends with, I am the Lord. God himself, guaranteeing you, wrapped up in his qualifications, wrapped up in his ability, his power, his power alone will deliver them into his presence. See, redemption, deliverance, what we might call salvation, always begins and ends with the Lord. From first to last, it is God's power that redeems us. And this is church, the gospel. That God first and last is going after you. That God has made a way for like we sang in the song this morning, that it is by grace and grace alone. And God brings us to a place where we know we need deliverance. Puts people in your life, brings situations into your life, uh, uh, brings to your mind uh, the, the thoughts that I need help. And then begins to point out that it is Christ and Christ alone that is all we want, all we need, all we need for saving. And he brings us to a place to believe it, even when no one else does. He brings us to a a place where we are to turn from our sin, to repent of it, and leave it behind us, our bondage from sin and into Christ, to where we embrace Christ. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, church. This is the good news that will save us. But let me tell you something up front. As many Christians in this room can attest to, it's easy to believe in the beginning, but it's hard to believe when you're hurting. It's easy to believe in the beginning, but it's hard to believe when you're hurting. See, look look at verse nine here. As Moses goes and he tells the people everything that God has said and promised that he would do. And what does it say? And they would not listen to him. Because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. And this is a lot like the Christian life. See, the tail end of chapter four. Moses had just got his commission from the Lord. He knew what he's going to do. He leaves Egypt, or he leaves the wilderness in Midian and comes, returns to Egypt, and he tells them what God has uh, told them that he's going to do. He's going to deliver them. And in chapter 4, verse 31 it says, the people believed and they heard that the Lord had visited Israel, and they bow down and they worship. And it is going great. And then in chapter five, then Moses and Aaron go and they tell Pharaoh and then it gets worse. And now their life has been just turned upside down. And now God is making these promises and their slavery is harsh. It's hard to believe when you're hurting. You know, like in the Christian life, we see the benefit we see what God promises us. His Spirit that in- empowers us and indwells us lives in us to give us a life. Now we have purpose and meaning and joy where we never thought possible, and we have the hope of eternal life of uh, of eternity with glory and heaven and with Christ and His beloved. And yet, then life hits, doesn't it? Temptation becomes harder. What you used to love is now off limits. And life is, is hard and you want to live for yourself and everything around you seems like it's closing in and then you walk a hard season in life and then, and then, you, and then you're grieving and hurting and suffering. You think, God, is this what you promised? And in the midst of it all, God promises to be with us. It's a call to endure. It's a call to believe even when no one else does. Even when you are hurting, even when it makes no sense at all. See, it reminds me of even our our present situation with COVID. Now, how many months has this gone on? We went into it all when it first hit and we're like, we we came into it with gusto and we, we thought, okay, we'll do this, we'll shut down for this time, we'll distance ourselves, we'll do what we need to do, we'll comply with the government, and we did that, and then things opened up and now it's gotten worse. Things are around, it seems like the walls are closing in, and my business is suffering, and my financial future is uncertain, and people around me are getting it, and this is not what I expected. I wanted to return to normal. In many ways, our collective spirit is broken. It's hard to believe right now that God is good, He's sovereign, He's present. And yet, the promises that we've been talking about for months here as a church, Jesus' promised presence of His wisdom that He gives to us, His purpose and meaning, all hold true as much today as they did months ago and decades ago and centuries ago and generations ago. See, Christ is the same today as he was then. He's as faithful now, church, as he was then. And our purpose as Christians, our purpose as a church hasn't changed. We have one message, be reconciled to God. We have one mission to make disciples of all nations. We have one mandate, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. It hasn't changed, COVID or not, hopeful or hurting, certain or uncertain. Today, tomorrow, in the past, or in the future, we press on, trusting that God is still good and sovereign, believing that His power will deliver us. It is His power alone that will make it get us to tomorrow and not in anything that we will do. But we have one message, one mission, one mandate. And this is actually what the second half of Exodus 6 is all about. We've just covered the first nine verses, but the next 20 or so teach us this. We are to be faithful even when the task seems daunting. If you're taking notes, that's our second point here, to be faithful even when the task seems daunting. And so join me back in your Bible. I want to read to you uh, beginning in verse 10 through the end. And now just a little bit of a spoiler, a warning, that the bulk of this is a genealogy. And yes, I'm going to read it. And yes, I'm going to probably make up some of the pronunciations of the names. But follow along as we read. Exodus 6, verse 10. Then, So the Lord said to Moses, go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, these are the heads of the father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jacob, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The son of Kohath, Amram, Isar, Hebron, and Uzal. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Meili, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Kohar, Nepheg, and Zikri; The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzepan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife, Elishaba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife, one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. Now these are, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? This is God's word for God's people. Thanks for enduring with me through that. What are we to make of this section of scripture then? What are we to make, especially of this genealogy in here? You know, are these just names that are hard to pronounce? You know, are these, like what I like to do is we read through these genealogies and look for potential baby names, you know? Like the, in verse 19, the sons of Merari, if you're going to have two sons, Maley and Mushy, those are kind of, you know, two good boy names, Right? What are we to make of all of this? Well, the point remains, as I said, we're to be faithful even when the task seems daunting we to be faithful, even when, the task, uh, even when the task seems daunting. See, what's most important, what is bracketing this genealogy? in t- Verses 10 to 13, and then also in 28 to 30, are this charge that God gives to Moses and Aaron. Really telling them, hey, the mission hasn't changed for you. You're to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And he, he, there's no signs to counter their complaints this time. There's nothing uh, to, to, uh, to assist them. It's really just, there's no coddling. He, God is telling them, hey guys, you got one job to do. You got one message. You, I'll leave the rest of the details to me. Now you got it to do, boys. Now get after it and go do it. And he repeats that on both sides. And then in the middle of that, you find this genealogy. But, but Moses, is he's, he's like complaining here he's like, I can't even convince my family, he says in verse 12. How how am I going to convince my enemy? You ever feel that way, right? You ever feel like, yeah, I I, I can't, like those closest to me, I can't even convince them to believe in things. God's like, yeah, you're right. You are powerless. But I can. I can do it. And it's some weird language here in which Moses, he, he complains. It literally, your ESV literally translates it, uncircumcised lips. Your translation may, uh, may, may say something like unskilled in speech or, or uh, that he was a poor speaker. And again, as Moses has complained all along that he's not eloquent. He's saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm not persuasive. I'm slow of tongue. I'm cumbersome in how I talk. And that's what he's referring to. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like, you know, in our kids, and they bring us multiple complaints over and over. And it's the same thing. Like, hey, you got to go do your homework. Well, I'm not good at math. You know, and initially you give them some helpful tips on how they can study, how they can do their work. And now, you know, it's the next day and they're complaining again. You're like, hey, you got to go do your homework. Just go, just get it done. And they complain. And God is saying, hey, it's my power that will deliver them. And so what are we to make of the genealogy then that's in between this? Why, why is the especially this partial genealogy here? Well, the first reason is there's historical reasons. We learn some things about Moses and Aaron. This is important. This is why genealogies are included. The lineage was important about where they came from and the promises that God has made to certain families. And so we learn from Moses and Aaron. We actually learn their parents' names, right? back in, in Exodus chapter two, when uh, Moses comes on the scene, and remember his mom puts him in a basket and he's rescued by Pharaoh's daughter there, it doesn't give his parents' name. It just says a son of Levi and a daughter of Levi. But now we, in, in verse, what is it, 20 here, we learn his parents' names, Amram and Jochebed And so there's some important things here. And as generations later would read it, they're like, ah, oh, that Moses, that Aaron, this is the line from which they come from. But there's also a spiritual reason for the genealogy here, and particularly for the partial genealogy, for it's to show that (laughs) that they come from a disgraced family, which in turn gives more glory to God. See, this limited genealogy tells us something. It begins with whom the sons of, what does it say there in verse 14, the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben. And so Jacob had how many sons? Let's go back, a little Bible trivia here. Jacob had how many sons? He had Twelve sons, right? He had twelve sons, and the first three, as you, as their story uh, unfolds, and as you get to the end of Genesis, the first three are disgraced and they are disqualified, actually, from being the the line of Jacob that would uh, that where the Messiah would come from. Reuben was disqualified for sins of adultery, and Simeon and Levi for abusing the covenant sign of circumcision and using it to murder a whole people group. And so God, in as a result, he does not pass. He overlooks them. He does not pass the line of the Messiah down to them. It goes to the fourthborn son of Judah. And so here is this, he just gives a little bit of Reuben, he gives a little bit of Simeon, and then he comes to Levi here. And these qualifications now, the family line from which it comes are contrasted with the first half of Exodus 6 that we've just saw and God's qualifications and God's power and God's character. So do you see it? saying it is God's power here. If Israel is going to be delivered, it is not going to be by a prestigious, powerful family. They will only be delivered by the strong hand of Yahweh. That this family has no prestige in their past, no power, they don't come from any, they don't have any inheritance. It is God's power alone that will deliver them. It is God himself that will be the source, not this family. And you know what's really cool that wrapped up in the middle of all this? There's some redemptive hope here in the midst of this genealogy that I want you to see. Because it doesn't matter where you've come from, only where you're going when it comes to the Lord and his usefulness of you. It doesn't matter where you come from only where you're going. See, the sins of your past don't define your future, even if you are still dealing with the consequences of them. See, God has a hopeful future. He is taking us forward. And this is what the genealogy does for us. See, the genealogy doesn't stop at Moses and Aaron, but it begins to uh, tell some of their sons and and those that would come after them. And if you put yourself in the shoes of the original readers here, those Israelites, that generation in the book of Joshua that were entering into the promised land, mind you, generation uh, or so later, as they're entering in, the, and this is after the priestly line was established. This was after the tabernacle had been raised and the worship of God, all the things that we would read in between them had already happened. And as they would be reading this and seeing what would come, point out that it doesn't matter where you've come from, but only where you were going. See, these sons, the sons of Levi, who as a result would not have a land inheritance in the promised land, would be God's appointed family, God's appointed line who would represent the people to God. Those that would do the work in the tabernacle, that would uh, light the incense, that would play the music, that would uh, attend to the sacrifices. And so God in his redeeming work is setting apart this family. Disgrace passed behind them and using them for his worship and his purposes, for his glory. Amen. See, it doesn't matter whether your past is harsh or holy, whether you come from a family that is jacked up or put together, whether you come from a family that is prestigious or poor, it doesn't matter what is behind you, but only what is ahead. God has a mission and a message for you is a spot on his team, a place in his family. We are just to be faithful, even when the task seems daunting, even when we seem ill-equipped and underqualified and unable to do what God is asking us to do. We don't rest back on our prestige. We don't rest back on where we've come from, but only on the one whom is ahead of us, the one whom we are following. See, these are days for us to be faithful, even when the task seems daunting, even when our future seems uncertain, even when it seems like COVID is changing everything and limiting all our ability to do anything in our own life, let alone ministry, let alone gospel ministry when we understand that it is God's power alone that will deliver us from sin, it is God's power alone that will deliver us out of this present situation, we are to be faithful even when the task seems daunting. That's the charge. That's the command. Will you follow him? Will you trust him? Will you lean in to his power, trusting that it is God who will deliver us? See this is the charge. This is the simple charge that God gives to Moses and Abraham. He tells them and then he points out in his genealogy, "Yeah, you uh, cannot do it. You have no family inheritance, no family prestige that's going to get it out of this. And yet, this is these are the men that I am calling to go forward. This is your message that you will come and say, "I am the Lord. Let my people go." And when you proclaim the power of God unto salvation, you can be sure that it is God who will come through. The question is, will we? Will we proclaim the message even when nobody will listen to us? Even when there's great cost involved, even when there is risk involved, even when we are certain that they will not listen? Certain like the prophets of old, like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, men who had a difficult task, a difficult message, and for decades were ridiculed, for decades they were ignored. And yet they were certain that God would come through, and in his good timing, his power did deliver the people of Israel. See, God will do what he covenanted to do. He will do it here. We'll, in the next chapter, few, several chapters really will show us that God's power will come through. And if your life, if your salvation, if your, uh, your testimony is any evidence of it, you can be certain that God himself will come through in your life as well. See, just like our story from the beginning, the deliverer, the good doctor, has entered the scene in the Israelites. And in our life, the doctor, the deliverer, has entered the room He has promised to go with us. He has promised to work exodus. He has promised that he, Jesus himself, said that I will build my church. He later said that I will be with you when we are about the great commission. And he alone has the authority and the power to make it happen. Do you believe it? I pray that you do. Would you pray with me even now? God in heaven, here we are. We're your people and we believe these truths. And yet in some ways, the task before us seems daunting. Even as we think of what you've called us to do, God, as you maybe are calling someone to salvation today, somebody who's recognized their need for you and, and they are counting the cost even now, that might mean this severed relationship. That means I have to give up this sin. And that means I might have to give up this. And they're counting the cost. Would you, Christ, by your spirit, even reveal to them today that your ways are worth it? That following you is of, oh, of, in, of inestimable value. <laughs> so we trust your power today. For others that are in this room, God, that, that uh, even as we hear these truths and as we think of these things, God, we, we recognize that, well, to have that conversation, to make that decision is gonna require you to come through. Would you, Lord, give the faith granted even now that they might believe you and be faithful to walk the road that you've called them to walk and so, God, we're we're here now. We're, we we've seen Your Word. We've we we believe it. Now we want to obey it. And so, even as we pray and sing, God, we just say we trust You, and we need Your help by Your Spirit. So, lend Your aid even now. Put courage in our in our in our soul. But strengthen our step as we walk, trusting You. We pray these things in Christ's name people said. Amen. Amen. Would you stand?